Get out there and bust them Krakens. Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 18, The Clouds Part, 1950 to 1951. I'm Keith Pilly. Okay, so last week we talked more about the continued success of Project Mousetrap, which in general seemed to be making serious progress in the Pacific, and in particular helped Commander Jorge Estrada of the USS O'Bannon to kill Blackjack Kraken, the last and deadliest of the big four primary creatures. This week, some success in a post-primary world and some hiccups. As President Dewey had hoped, the death of Blackjack Kraken sparked a wave of jubilation across the country. Spontaneous celebrations in the streets continued for days. In Kansas City, a line of people parading through the streets, banging pots and pans together, stretched for over a mile. Wall Street had its best week since the end of the war. Quote, To be honest, I'm not sure what the death of that damn squid has to do with Coca-Cola, investment banker Ed Cornell told the Wall Street Journal. But I'll welcome any market rally I see. Hell, maybe it's hope or celebration. All I know is that I like it when the numbers go up, and by God, they're going up. End quote. The use of Jorge Estrada as a roving ambassador to sell bonds to fund the conflict and the reconstruction of the Bay Area also quickly turned out to be an immediate success. Packed crowds turned up to meet every event on his whirlwind whistle-stop tours of the country, and within three months, over $200 million had been raised. This public funding windfall was a very good thing, because the ongoing Pacific operations continued to be ruinously expensive, and the cleanup and reconstruction of the Bay Area was projected at the time to cost at least a billion dollars. The Army Corps of Engineers was assigned to spearhead the effort, but it became clear within the space of a few months that the task at hand was far beyond the capacities of their current manpower levels. Eventually, a reluctant Dewey would find himself with no choice but to reactivate several long mothballed New Deal-era public works programs to work under the supervision of the Corps of Engineers. The problems in the Bay Area were manifold. First and most obvious was the damage caused by the sea creatures themselves, and then the enormous devastation wrought by the bombs that had vanquished the sea creatures. This swath of destruction included not just the damage caused by the blast waves, but also the enormous fires that had raged unfought for several days throughout the Bay Area exclusion zone, ruining many times more structures than did the original bombs. And then there was the large fallout plume that had scattered varying levels of radioactivity for miles downwind of each detonation site. Finally, and vexingly, there was the problem of a large, semi-enclosed body of water thoroughly polluted by both fallout and the continuing presence of hundreds of tons of rotting organic matter. Looking for an easy win, the Corps of Engineers chose to start by cleaning fallout and rebuilding fire damage structures at the outer edges of the exclusion zone. The boost in public mood was most welcome, of course, but it didn't change the underlying reality. Shipping in the Pacific was now possible, but only in limited channels protected by an expensive naval presence. The major primary creatures might all be dead, but the sea was still full of lesser creatures. 
Commercial fishing, indeed any seafood harvest that required more than a wade into waist-deep water, remained economically unfeasible. The recent news was good, but the struggle was not over. And in June, the struggle itself encountered a setback. Although there were several facilities in use up and down the west coast, one of the primary sites for preparing bait barges for use on convoy missions was a dock complex in Long Beach, California. During the war, a warehouse had existed for explosive ordnance next to the docks, and now more and more of these explosives were shipped in by truck and rail so that the barges could be loaded and armed before being towed off for use. At 8.06 a.m. on June 14, 1950, an enormous explosion tore apart a barge being loaded at Dock C of the Long Beach facility. Immediately after this initial explosion, a sister barge being armed on Dock D detonated. Both blasts leveled small buildings nearby, and the resulting fires moved towards the ordnance warehouse with terrifying speed, leading the yard supervisor to trigger an emergency system that filled the warehouse with flame-suppressant foam. Naval and municipal firefighters worked for 18 hours to contain the fires, which killed 57 shipyard workers and injured hundreds more, some of them grievously. Detonation of the warehouse was prevented, and after the fact investigation concluded that if the warehouse had exploded, it likely would have done so with nearly as much force as a Hiroshima-style atomic bomb, possibly annihilating a significant part of the Los Angeles metro area. But the Long Beach facility was damaged so severely as to be unusable for the near future. The modular nature of the bait barge program meant that the assembly and arming work could fairly easily be moved to other facilities um, with much tighter safety controls installed during the move. Although the exact cause of the initial detonation was never determined for sure, the commission investigating the accident concluded that the most likely cause was an interfering radio signal triggering the remote detonator when it was turned on for circuit testing after the barge's explosives had been loaded and wired. This fault was easily remedied. But other problems were not so easily sidestepped. Because of the discriminatory practices of the Navy and its civilian contractors, 44 of the 57 dead and the vast majority of the wounded were African-American dock workers. In the aftermath, black dock workers throughout the West Coast organized and went on strike, arguing that they were done being treated as expendable cogs in the war effort. The strikes shut down bait barge construction and preparation for weeks, during a time when the loss of the Long Beach facility was already threatening to create a supply bottleneck and urgent work was needed to move production elsewhere. Dewey felt that he had no choice but to negotiate, and looking for a California connection, he asked California Congressman Richard M. Nixon, a rising young star in the House of Representatives, to travel to the coast and negotiate on his behalf. Nixon did so, and in what was later hailed as a masterpiece of shuttle diplomacy, reached an argument wherein the workers agreed to go back onto the job if the Navy agreed to a lengthy list of new safety measures and the Dewey administration agreed to help push anti-discrimination legislation through Congress. Dewey, anxious to keep the mousetrap operation rolling, reluctantly agreed and Richard Nixon helped to spearhead the Fairness and Workplace Anti-Discrimination Act through Congress, 
supercharging his already red-hot political career. Decades later, the idea took hold that it was surprising that Nixon, who had been building a reputation as a staunch anti-communist in the House, would pivot to labor relations and anti-discrimination and then follow that path to prominence. But this fails to take account of Nixon's obvious skill in reading the political currents and his ability to refashion himself in ways advantageous to his own advancement. And given the nation's complicated relationship with organized labor in the early stages of the Cold War, it was probably essential that someone with solid anti-communist credentials undertake these negotiations. By the time of Nixon's successful White House run in 1964, this idea had actually solidified into a proverb, one that has just stuck around American politics for decades. Only Nixon could go to Pedro, the saying goes. Through 1950 and 1951, the improved convoy system allowed the steady rebuilding of Pacific shipping. An enhanced mousetrap system remained in effect, with convoys surrounded by mousetrap destroyers and a constant napalm-armed air presence overhead. Hendry and her team, by now, had developed a new metric for judging creature opposition to fleet action, average miles traveled per creature contact. In the late months of 1950, a given mousetrap convoy could count on at least one creature contact per 500 miles traveled. As the number of creatures continued to be whittled down, by mid-1951, the expectation was more in the neighborhood of one encounter per 2,000 miles. Losses still happened occasionally, but with steadily decreasing frequency. As the rate of creature attacks wound down, an increasing percentage of the losses came from accidental mousetrap barge detonations, which remained stubbornly frequent. As the mousetrap era took hold, Admiral Fletcher took the bold step of essentially beaching most of the Navy's Pacific assets that were larger than destroyers. Except for escort carriers providing air cover for convoys, there was simply no role for the battleships and cruisers which now mostly swung to anchor at ports up and down the west coast. Only a handful of fleet carriers with modest screens of smaller ships were put to use establishing napalm-armed air umbrellas under which commercial fishing operations could resume in a limited fashion. And even then, land-based aviation took up most of the slack. Sailors on the carrier USS Enterprise, wryly conscious of the unheroic importance of their mission providing air cover for fishing boats, made their own bootleg unit patches showing a trident draped with fishing nets. In the cases of both shipping and fishery, the fact that the activities could only safely occur with military escort meant that they remained at levels that were mere fractions of what they'd been before the conflict. But the size of those fractions were steadily going up, and there were indications that the threat from the creatures was going down. As the convoys plied the ocean, each one now carried a team of analysts from ONI, present to observe creature interactions and collect data from carcasses after action. To Kay Hendry's later stated displeasure, examination of many, but not all, of these carcasses showed muscle tissue consistent with Regina Foner's theory of an inherited mutation caused by cosmic rays. The origin debate heated up somewhat within the halls of ONI, although there was no practical effect of all this in the field, and in the end, the observations were deemed not universal enough to be anywhere near conclusive. Through 1951, 
The average carcass size continued to trend smaller and smaller at the same time that the rate of miles traveled per encounter went up. In other words, the teams concluded, there were fewer and fewer creatures out there, and the older, more developed members of the population were being killed off. A fierce, if quiet, debate raged in San Diego and Washington over whether this would have been possible through Mousetrap alone, or if it was the combination of the mass atomic kill-off in the Bay Area and then Mousetrap being activated on a much-reduced creature population. But whatever the path to get there, it was clear that the tide had truly turned. Normalcy was within reach, and maybe even pretty easy reach. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, for listening. Please join me next week as we get to the end of the story, or at least this part of it. Thanks, and be well. Them squids they didn't think about Just who they was attacking Wake her, boys Get out there and bust them crackings I almost feel sorry For them serpents we've been tracking Battle stations, boys Get out there and bust them crackings Light up all them battleships And send the seafood packing Train them guns out, boys Get out there and bust them crackings Dee